Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a crowd podcast. Rosenberg, H-Bomb, Sugar Ray. Hello again and welcome to episode 17 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now. All dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and ability to make major global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, we go where no other podcast goes because no other podcast has their hand held by Billy Joel. He's holding a lot of hands here. He's holding mine today because we're talking about a subject I know nothing about, Sugar Ray Robinson. Yeah. And you know a little something about it because you're a sports buff. <laughs> you're a sporty guy. For many years, I was a sports writer, Katie. So, yeah, I know a little bit about Sugar Ray. There's always a debate in boxing about who is the best. It's the phrase they use, the best pound-for-pound pound fighter of all time. Sugar Ray is so important that he's the man that the phrase pound-for-pound was invented for. No. I believe so. That's one of my favorite phrases. I use it about everything, never about boxing. I mean, I am the perfect customer for this podcast because I need learning. I need my boxing cherry popped. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And we have the perfect man to do it. He is a sports journalist and commentator. He's popularly known as the voice of British boxing. It is Steve Bunce, a.k.a. Buncey. Welcome. What a delight to be on this show. And I'd like to start, if I might finish with it as well, I might do it twice, um, with a Billy Joel story. Yes, please. Major boxer. Proper golden gloves champion. Really? That's not that's not that's not me codding or conning you. Real story. Going back to about nineteen seventy seven, Billy Joel was all over top of the pops. He was massive, he was a monster. He's doing a charity gig at the Hilton Hotel, Central London, Park Lane. And he wants on the stage of him, he wants proper boxers. He wants them skipping, going on the pads and doing all sorts of stuff. I'm too young to go out for the night to this charity event, but dozens of my friends are there. But then he shows up at a boxing gym, the Fitzroy Lords Boxing Gym in Lambeth, just across the the Thames here. And of course, he's about four foot four. 
that's what the first thing you have to understand. He's got his platforms <laughs> on, he's got his big hair and he's got his giant minders. Spends the entire night in the gym, signs anything you want. Billy Joel, and I tell you what, he struck me as a really decent fella. But then I'm not really a Billy Joel music fan, I'm a Billy Joel a boxer fan. Uh-huh. Don't know, just want, just want to get that straight before we go any further. So I don't want any cheap shots of Billy Joel, you understand <laughs> no, me? No, no. Thank you. You, you set out <laughs> the parameters quite uh, forcefully. So why is it that Sugar Ray has captured the public's imagination? Well, one of the things is he fights for 25 years, so he goes through loads and loads of periods. He starts just about American pre-war, and he ends in the middle of the 60s when they're just about to get really stuck in another war, Vietnam. He touches just about every single part of the culture throughout that period. His friends are part of that period. You know, him and Frank Sinatra are buddies. It's not, it's not rubbish. They didn't meet once or twice at fights in Las Vegas. They're friends. Frank went after hours to Ray's Bar, to Sugar Ray's Bar in Holland. That's a fact. That's what they did. They bedded women together. They socialised together. They spent time together. If ever Sugar Ray had a problem, a race-related problem, invariably it was Sinatra who sorted it out. That's culturally why. And if you want to ask boxing-wise, it's because of just this endless list of fights that he had. And it's fights against great fighters, not three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or nine. Loads of fighters fight 10 good fighters in their career. Some even fight 15. He fights about 35 to 40 named fighters, either guys that were world champions or would go on to be world champions or or had been world champions. Giant names. Inside boxing, these are the greatest names through a 25-year period. But And also within about a 20-pound weight difference. Now, bear in mind, modern boxing is separated by three pounds. Over a seven-pound difference, you're talking about four weights. No, Sugar Ray fought over three weights that took in about nearly two stone. And he was involved in these just enormous events. Events that, what we say in sport, and Tom will know this, is events that are front and back pay. So even though he might have fought 17 or 21 times in one particular year, mm. his fights were still front and back page. And he had a, this entourage. You know about the entourage? I'm probably jumping right to the end of the pod, but I don't care. It's just <laughs> the way it works. He had two guys for his hair. Two different guys for hair. One for the treatment and one for the cutting. Yeah. He had two different types of dance instructors. Oh, because he was a dancer as well. He was a great dancer, yeah. There's a suggestion that he could have been the greatest dancer of all time instead of the greatest fighter of all time. So, Bunsey, have you seen, and I don't know if you've had a chance to see it this, Tom, but he has this tap dancing session with Gene Kelly. You can find it on YouTube. And he's just incredible. And, in fact, I was reading about him, and he said that uh, his dance training was even harder than his training for boxing. Because he had to uh, stop using muscle memory. So shoulders and backs and arms, that's all stuff he'd been used to using since he was 12, 13, 14. And he had to train his legs to do stuff differently. So but this was totally different training. It was concentrated just on his legs, just in a room, no distractions. And uh, it really got to him. He, I tell you what he had, he sort of had no attention. He had this attention problem. He couldn't really do very much for very long. He had to move on. I mean, there's so much we can talk about here, Katie. It feels like we should go back to the start because Sugar Ray's life seems to be cut from the same cloth as so many other African-Americans at that point. So he grows up in Georgia. His dad is a cotton and peanut farmer. And then they are part of the great migration northwards to the industrial cities. 
He, they go to Detroit. He follows um, several fighters, most notably Joe Louis, the brown bomber, the big heavyweight from the 20s and 30s, in fact, all the way through to the 50s. Um, this migratory path that he took and dozens of other very famous uh, black American uh, fighters took is a bit confusing, so much so that there are a couple of suggestions about his age not being quite what it's stated to be, him being younger and him being older, take your pick. And also, in his first autobiography, and I don't know how many there were, there's certainly a couple, he claims he's actually born in Detroit. Um, I think in the third autobiography, he claimed he was born in Harlem. I mean, basically, there wasn't a lot of fact-checking going on in the American publishing business in the 50s, obviously. Um, but no, this is this incredibly hard upbringing. And then his father stays behind. Oh, because he moves with his mother to Harlem. No, no, no. First of all, they go to Detroit. Right. And once he gets to Detroit, um, it's that the opportunities apparently, allegedly, are better in Harlem. Harlem's the magnet. It was the hub. It was the center. It was the center of the black American world. I mean, this was such a thriving metropolis inside the metropolis that there was just golden opportunities. The streets were paved not necessarily with gold, but certainly with, you know, some high quality silver. So everybody would would migrate towards Harlem. I mean, the the, the activity coming out of there. And if you if you look at some of Ray's early influences, I mean, he's rubbing shoulders with the greatest dancers, the greatest singers, the greatest entrepreneurs, the greatest hairstylists, the greatest this, the greatest that. And they're all part of this area, this business in, in Harlem, this, this black thriving business that, that was ex- existed in the late 40s and into the 50s. And how does he, as a teenager, get into boxing? He decides he, he likes what Joe Louis doing. This is this, when he was with Joe Louis out in Detroit. He walks into a gym and he's got a bit. He's got some skills. He gets spotted by several people. He then finds out he can make a few quid on what we call bootleg shows or shiner shows or smokies, whatever. They've got different names for them. But basically, we're fighting illegally. Um, you're fighting without a license, but you're getting paid money. He's actually making money. He can't believe he's making money. I mean, he's making, you know, in some fights, what his mother's making, taking in washing and doing menial jobs around uh, different different parts of Harlem. He's making more in one night than she's making in a week. So he comes in through the back door. And, and, and of course, back then, he's not yet uh, Sugar Ray Robinson. He's still a man called Walker Smith Jr. Hmm. And how does he get his new name? Well, again, it depends what autobiography you want to use, uh, and you can take your pick. But I think the general consensus is uh, there is a guy called Ray Robinson who also fights for the same gym as he fights for. And Ray Robinson's not there, but a guy called George Gainsford has Ray Robinson's medical card stroke fight pass in his pocket and it was that night allegedly after that one particular fight somewhere in new york or take your pick that's when gainsford decides that he is so sweet he's as sweet as sugar and that allegedly his out of sugar got attached now i've got to be honest with you i mean we're all friends here if you did some forensic work on that you'll probably find about 99% of what I've told you there is absolute rubbish <laughs> but it makes no difference because it's established rubbish you understand me it's just <laughs> because somewhere he stops being Walker Smith and he becomes Sugar Ray Robinson that's a fact how he got there it's one of about 30 different routes but he got there and that's all you need to know he is he is now established as Sugar Ray Robinson <laughs> 
What does he look like in the ring then, Steve? Because there's certain fighters we can go back and we can watch all their fights. The ones, the greats who come along in his wake. But because of the way boxing was covered then, the way technology was, there's, there's some footage, but there's not heaps of footage. So take me and Katie ringside when he's fighting. What does he look like? What are we seeing? And some of that footage is, is that horrible, herky-jerky black and white stuff that's just not... You can't really get a sense of it. You can break him down. You can break Ray down. His feet are always set perfectly. Now, you know, if we had time, I'd get you, we could pull up a thousand pictures of Sugar Ray Robinson fighting, stills, mostly black and white. In every single one of those pictures, his feet would be in the right position. Now, that's virtually impossible to be able to do that. I don't know another fighter. So his balance is perfect. Part of that is maybe this dancing thing. He's got this incredible balance. He's got this tiny waist. Okay, he's got these very long legs. And he's also six foot. Now, for a welterweight, that's a man that weighs 10 stone seven. That's hefty. The average welterweight would be about 5'9", five 5'10". Five but he's six foot for a good part of his career, for a very big part of his career. And he looks a bit like a butterfly swimmer. Anybody listening that, that will know the difference between a butterfly swimmer and any other athlete. They've got no waist and they've got shoulders that look like they borrowed five people's shoulders. They're vast. And then he's got perfect hair that was barely ruffled in 200-odd fights. And when he, when he moves, he's so smooth. He's poised, he's balanced. And there's a big debate in boxing whether... Sugar Ray Robinson was the best boxer, the best fighter, the best stylist, the best this, the best that. I happen to think, and it's not necessarily a really popular view, that he was a great puncher, a really lethal puncher. And the reason I say that is that it's the balance. The power comes from your balance. Otherwise, every single great fighter in history would just look like a weightlifter and Ray Robinson doesn't look like that I doubt he ever used the weight in his life and when you read some of the interviews with the men he he met they talk about all sorts of things they talk about the arrogance they talk about the speed but what they all talk about even if it's grudgingly because he whipped them is the power so he, he's coming up, and in his ascendancy, he's there just holding his own and getting better and better, and I guess uh, going up through the ranks in terms of who he's boxing. And so what are some of the, the key matches for him? So as he's working through the ranks, he's being properly matched. And then suddenly, after 20, 30 fights, he starts to fight guys that are perhaps not at their peak but not a million miles from their peak. And these are big names, Sammy Angle. These guys are sort of acknowledged as the top 10, one of the top 10 lightweights in history. Fritzy Zivic, it's a real name, trust me. Then he has to fight his old, his old idol, Henry Armstrong, who's not even that old, but he's lost his way and he's already slurring his words and he's already showing real signs of struggle. These are such shockingly hard fights. And what I find really amazing about them is that there's sort of sometimes there's seven days and ten days between fighting legends of the ring. And he'll fight one in Chicago in front of 14,000 people. And then ten days later, having gone back to Harlem, he's down down in Philadelphia fighting in front of 19,000 people, another ex-world champion. It's kind of hard to understand. I mean, in football terms, it would be like five 90-minute matches in a day. Yeah, yeah, the I stamina. Mean, it, it, just, is... it, it, it just doesn't, none of it makes any sense. Yeah, I and mean, then on top of that, he, he has to battle 
the prejudice that was going on at the time, the the segregation. Um, in fact, when he was in the army, had a fifteen month stint in the army, yeah. and he was doing those exhibition matches with Joe Lewis, and he didn't want to do the matches where black soldiers weren't allowed to attend, or, or black soldiers were relegated to a section over on the right hand side where they couldn't they couldn't see the ring. Well, also there was a lot of mafia control of boxing in the forties. There were fixed fights standard, and. Sugar Ray Robinson could have had an easier life. He could have made a lot more money. But at some point during that easier life and at some point whilst he was acquiring money in the late 40s and early 50s, he would have had to what we call throw a fight. And he could he was incapable of throwing a fight. Um, he, In fact, he wouldn't even take it easy with a sparring partner if the sparring partner had done something like stolen a girlfriend from him the night before in a club or maybe looked at his wife in a way that Sugar didn't like. So he, w- he would have been incapable of it. And he stood up to really big characters. These are not bit players in the American crime story. I mean, he stood up to uh, Frankie Carbo. He stood up to Blinky Palermo. These are giants. These are the genuine godfathers of American crime. These are guys that fixed everything from presidential elections to fights to races to whatever. These were the kings. And he stood up to them. Uh, I mean, he was I mean, brave, foolish, fearless, whatever you want to say, but he did it, man. You know what, Katie? In a couple of episodes time, we're, we're talking about Marlon Brando. And this whole backstory ties in a treat, doesn't it, to On the Waterfront, where he's playing Terry Malloy, who has to take a dive because his big brother sets him up. That's right. Yeah. that's and, th- and that's one of those things that I think really grips the popular imagination. And probably that was part of the reason why the public were so attracted to Sugar Ray, because they understood that he had that integrity. And he was, he was, he was what? He was a clean fighter. I mean, I don't know when On the Waterfront came out, um, the Bud Schulberg novel comes out before, but that would have been the image. And then, of course, there have been some famous cases. Jake LaMotta, one of Sugar Ray's greatest opponents, and the guy who's the subject... Fights him six times, doesn't fights he? Fights him six times for fun, yeah. As, as Jake said as part of his stand-up routine, I fought him so many times I thought I was going to get sugar diabetes. I mean, th- their series of fights is unbelievable. The sequencing is, is quite quite incredible. But th- that's what the public knew. They knew big-name guys that had thrown fights. Then there's a really famous book comes out about a guy that threw a fight whose life is ruined, and then that's turned into a movie with Marlon Brando. So that's the sort of public perception. And the public would have got that sense with him that what they were getting is what they were seeing, and it was genuine. So speaking of Jake LaMotta, his rivalry with him was actually depicted in the Scorsese film Raging Bull, where LaMotta was played by Robert De Niro. What was the kind of basis or the trajectory of that rivalry? Well, lunacy. It's the only way to describe it. Uh, Sugar wins the first fight, uh, but it's really hard. Every single se- I think every single second those two ever spent in the ring uh, was fearsome, hotly debated, fearsome, really tight. Sugar wins the first fight. Then they have a second fight, and Lamotta is on form on that particular one, and he wins. He just nicks it. There's not a lot in it, but he gets the second fight. And then, and not a lot of people know this, um, they, they have a third fight, but in between the second fight and the third fight, uh, Ray Robinson has another fight about a thousand miles away, and then they fight again. He fights Jake Lamotta, twenty rounds, someone in the middle for ten rounds, all in a twenty-one day period. <laughs> I mean, this is—I'm not being funny. I don't—I don't know. I mean, I don't know if us us three in this room could have three marathon recording sessions in twenty-one days and be okay. This guys, <laughs> these guys are going. Th- 
These guys are going 30 minutes, 10 three-minute rounds, and they're traveling all over the place. I mean, it's just hard to get your head round. I mean, he did lots of things like that, but that particular one is the one that gets me. Is He gets this, because that's his first loss. When he loses to Lamotta, mm. that's his first loss in whatever it is, 100 fights or 98 fights or whatever it is. The numbers just become ridiculous. It's his first loss, and he's so angry. He's so angry. So instead of just training for a rematch, he's already committed to another 10-rounder so he could pick up a few more dollars because he's spending money like it's going out of Fashion. What's he spending money on? Oh man, just about everything. He's spending money on keeping women places. He's spending money on his wife. He's sending, spending money on sending sending money occasionally to his first wife. The he had he must have had the worst series of accountants over a twenty five year period because he's forever getting bills from the tax office that are out of all proportion. So he's spending money that's going out of fashion. So he he has the first the second Lamotta fight. Commits to another 10 rounder here, comes through that, gets to Lamotta third fight, and then marches on. And I don't know when he fights after that. He probably fought 10 days later. I mean, you can't. How does your body take it? Mm. I mean, I'm around fighters all the time, and I see them come out of the ring in hard fights, hard 10 rounders, good fighters against good fighters. And they need two and three weeks to recover before they can get out of bed. It's just staggering. How's America consuming this? this revolutionary fighter uh i'm guessing there's no fights live on tv so are you reading about him in your paper are you maybe going because he's fighting so many times are you getting a chance to see him in the flesh in the flesh part of it tom is in the flesh that's why he's fighting so many times that's why he's averaging 20 odd fights a year and that's how it goes and also and this is one of the greatest topics in 50s america i love this 50s and 60s america the sports writers were gods if I'd have been born in America in the 50s or 60s, I would have retired by 40 years. We missed gone. that, Bunty, didn't we? Oh, we uh, Tom, I am, ass- I am assuring you, these guys were gods. <laughs> they had syndicated columns that were read by millions and millions. And they would go to these fights and they would write these pieces. And that was gospel. I'll be honest, my mind is being blown. I need to take a few moments while we have a quick ad break. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs> I am very interested in a very unusual blip, Buncey, mm. in Sugar Ray's career. He had a little three-year showbiz interlude starting in 1952 where he just he quit boxing. He started singing, tap dancing. Why did he do that and how did that go? I think his body was – it had been a pro 12, 13 years at that point. And I think his body was um, starting to tell him that, y- you know, you can't keep on doing this. Well, no, he would prove that wrong when he made his comeback. But at that point, I think his body was tired. So what was it like being a black celebrity at that time? If you're a black man with money and a desire to spend it flamboyantly and publicly, what would it be like? <laughs> this is the really unexplored area of Sugar Ray Robinson's life, in my opinion. I don't think it's ever been fully done. But if you read, not between the lines, but if you read contemporary reports, there's a great old writer in Britain called Peter Wilson. He wrote for the Daily Mirror and he was A, one of the greatest drinkers in the world and B, one of the greatest sports writers in history. And he went all around the world 
covering fights and covering sports. And he spent a lot of time with Sugar Ray. And he insists, basically, that Ray was very touchy about his colour and took any slight, he'd fall out with anybody if he thought it was a slight against his colour. And I think that what Sugar Ray did, a lot of it was in a black environment. Harlem. We can't underestimate Harlem because Harlem went through this devastating period from the early 60s until about 10 years ago when it was a no-go area where there was next to nothing there, where it was burned down crack houses and was just a backdrop of just how bad urban blight was in America. There was this 40s and 50s period when Harlem was just this thriving centre of the universe it was musically at the forefront it was artistically at the forefront there were all these entrepreneurs there all these political activists there Uh, you know Malcolm X would be on a street corner in 1956 and Sugar Ray Robinson would have nothing to do with him that I mean just it was so much was happening there and he was at the center of this and he's got a block this black fighter who was born with nothing owns a block and all of the apartment houses. He owns it. And he parks his pink caddy outside. It's about, I'm going to say 25 foot, because it should be out to exaggerate when you're talking about Sugar Ray. And it's got a black signature, his signed signature on the door. This hasn't happened since. No, he must have been an incredible role model. It's beyond role model, Kate. It goes to a different level. Yeah. How do you measure it? I don't know. The fact that he was able to make such a successful comeback, I mean, more than one, is that a usual thing in boxing? Because aren't you kind of just uh, minced beef after after a certain period? Well, he might have still been minced beef when he came back, because if you listen to the few pieces of audio, he's noticeably slurring. But he doesn't take easy fights. He fights hard guys. I mean, and then, of course, he gets around and there's a new, slightly new generation of slightly younger guys that have got a bit of respect and fear for him but they're not really afraid of him and that's when you start seeing the more iconic Sugar Ray Robinson fights and part of that just like with Muhammad Ali 30 years later is because he had slowed down so whisper it he becomes slightly more human so he's involved in fights because his reflexes are fading a little bit and he's and his punch resistance is dropping a little bit, so he keeps getting clipped on the chin and going down. And he's maybe not got as much power as he had seven, eight years, nine years, ten years earlier. Peter Wilson always talks about how in 1949 that was the greatest Sugar Ray. And yet the, some of the more most iconic and brilliant fights are in 58, 59, eight or nine years after Peter Wilson claims was his peak. It's a life touched by tragedy as well, Steve, isn't it? The fight he has with... Jimmy Doyle in 1947 and you know he wouldn't have been the first and certainly not the last fighter to have been involved in a fight where one of the protagonists later dies mm. of the injuries he received how did he deal with that oh, this is interesting it's because he has this dream and his version is he calls the commission and says look I can't fight tonight something bad's going to happen so they say don't be silly we've got you know 19,000 people here blah blah you know so no trust me I can't fight tonight something bad's going to happen what's going to happen it's going to be a death in the ring in the end they talk him round they talk him round they talk him round he gets in the ring sure enough kills injures him knocks him out uh, 17 hours later he dies and 
that hurts Sugar Ray because he knows that he's had this vision. He had vision. that premonition. Proper premonition. This is not like, oh, I don't feel good about this today. Right. Like you do when you go into a bad Indian restaurant or a bad <laughs> or a bad, a bad chicken house and you think, you know what, I don't really trust this. No, no, not like that. No, he, he's, he's had a really bad feeling. About it. He knows he shouldn't be in that ring. He knows it. And it's afterwards that, um, again, one of those classic Sugar Ray things. Did he give... Uh, Jimmy Doyle's mother stroke widow all the money from the fight or did he just pay for them to have a house worse ways he gave them $10,000 worse mm. ways that is an established 100% fact we know, he, we know he did that did it change him as a person because other boxers have gone through that I'm thinking there's a there's a, a guy you know well Steve or you'll, you'll know the story well Ray Boom Boom Mancini yeah who um Strange to say, he kills a man, but his opponent dies after a fight, and it haunted him for the rest of his days. Not only because he thought about, and the referee killed himself in that, commit suicide, commit suicide as a result of that. So it had this lasting legacy, and people, Katie, would go up to Ray Boom Boom Mancini in the years that followed and ask to see the fist that killed his opponent. He he could not shake oh, that one moment off. That's grim. So how was Sugar Ray about it? He struggled with it. But he pushed on and got on with it. He had to, which is what other fighters have done. And in fact, Sugar Ray, there's a dual personality to to Ray Robinson. I I don't doubt that he wasn't well for a lot of his life. And I really mean that in the nicest possible way. He he talks after the fight. There's a... There's an inquest. I'm not sure if an inquest might be too strong a word, but he has to go in front of the commission. The coroner says to him, was there anything you could have done? Uh, you could see he was hurt, and Ray Robinson says something along the lines of, well, I'm in the hurt business, or I get paid to hurt people, which sounds incredibly cold, but that's what it is. You know, I've been sitting down at ringside for 35 years, and the two men or, or the two women I'm watching coming together in the middle of the ring are there to hurt each other. I mean, I can try and make a case for it being the the, the, the beautiful science, the sweet science. I can try and make a case for it being the art of self-defense. I can make all of those cases, I'd be lying. Man A is trying to knock out man B or woman B is trying to knock out woman A. It's that simple. I'm knocking someone out invariably, and I mean a laugh, verily entails hurting someone. So Ray Robinson knew, but he he did suffer from that. And I think uh, it's bizarre, but he might have looked after Doyle's family better than he looked after his own family. We can draw a line under that. Sugar Ray Robinson looked after the man he killed in the ring's family better than he did his own. I think that's established. Yeah, there's this really sad story, Katie, isn't there, about Sugar Ray in 1965, and he's bankrupt. He's lost all that $4 million, whatever it is he's supposed to have owned. He gets given an award, a sort of pat on the head, and he takes it back to his apartment. Oh, it's at Madison Square Garden. It's Sugar oh, Ray Robinson Night at yeah. Madison Square you wa- Garden. Have you watched it? The period I you watched it. I haven't seen it, no. I, I, you know that expression, you watch something through your fingers? Oh, Oh, my God. It's cringe. hot because the four people that are there all hate him. I know they hate him. And they've got robes on and gowns on. Oh, it's the tackiest thing in the oh. world. And they give him this ridiculous sort of nine-foot-tall trophy. But it's the looks on their faces and the white knuckles right. as, as they're... The gritted teeth. Oh, God! And they hate him. And so he gets... And so, Tom, you were saying he gets this trophy back to his back apartment. Back to his apartment and doesn't have a, a stick of furniture to put strong it enough to take the weight oh. of this trophy. I went looking for that trophy 10 years ago. I was trying to get a Sugar Ray uh, Robinson book uh, off the ground about 10 years ago and um, never got it off the ground. But I went to I went to Harlem and saw this little plaque on the wall there. And, and I always had in my mind, everyone I asked about that trophy, and I've never, it's never been found. Now, I, I don't know if it's out there. It might have just 
fallen apart for all I know. Uh, but I'd love to, wouldn't it be lovely to find that trophy somewhere? That'd be gorgeous, wouldn't it? And of course, now that trophy would be worth millions mm. to a collector. And back then, you know, I bet, yeah. he, I bet he pawned it for 50 bucks. We're saying, I'm saying 25. One of the things that I found really poignant when I was reading a little bit up on him was he was so loved. He was even given a standing ovation during his last match in 1965 when he was being creamed mm -hmm. by a less than elite boxer. But people just kept jumping up and applauding him. That last fight, Joey Archer, I mean, that's his 14th fight of that one year, 65. And, and Archer, I don't know if Archer holds him up. Um, that's an expression. Like, I don't know if Archer holds back a little bit, but Archer's not a puncher. Archer hadn't not dropped anybody since 1960. And yet he, he drops and hurts Ray. And I can't watch. There's a couple of clips of that. I can't really watch it. But my understanding is he, he, it's a full-on shellacking, a full-on beating. And Archer probably could have stopped him, but probably didn't. He probably held back. And I think he held back a little bit. But you know, if he'd have won that fight, here's the mad thing. A man called Dick Tiger was ringside and Dick Tiger was the middleweight champion of the world at the time and the winner of that fight was going to get a crack at Dick Tiger so had he won that fight at 44, 46 years of age in what would have been his 203rd or 4th fight he would have fought for the title again What's his legacy Steve as both a boxer and a, a black man? Well I'll deal with the second part of that first I don't think he, I don't think well, I, don't, I know he doesn't get the recognition he deserves as a black athlete and as an influential black figure, not just in Harlem, but across America. In fact, probably across the world, to be honest with you. He doesn't get that recognition. He doesn't get the respect he deserves. As a fighter, there's no problem. I mean, anybody that wants to tell you that he's not the greatest fighter of all time has an agenda. I mean, he was a flawed individual. Let's get that absolutely right. He did have some problems. He was tricky with his friendships. He let a lot of people down, sons, wives multiple lovers, business partners. He basically knocked just about everybody, as they say. And then, of course, there's the stuff that's established, and that's the domestic abuse stuff, which is there. It can't go away. It won't go away, and it shouldn't go away. But by the time he was lashing out of his fists um, at his wife and, and other girlfriends and partners, he was already ill. He had already taken too much punishment. That's not an excuse. That's a fact. But Sugar Ray Robinson, without doubt, the greatest fighter of all time, but a massively flawed individual. Mr. Steve Bunce, I feel like I've been at the knee of a master storyteller <laughs> with you today. And I feel like I've been in the boxing ring with Sugar Ray, and I'm knocked out by his charm and by his talent. Thank you very much. No, thank you too for having me. It's been an absolute delight and a pleasure. We'll do part two tomorrow. <laughs> I have to say I'm a little bit punch drunk after that discussion of boxing and also the marvels because I never – I don't think I've ever appreciated boxing so much as a sport. But I can see that above and beyond the skill of Sugar Ray, there's also just the glamour. You know, he's, su he's such an aspirational figure. Yeah, and I think when you watch boxers – and it is a sport which has percussive violence at its core – you do see – the physical skills the boxers have, that idea of Sugar Ray as a dancer, as someone, you know, yeah. you, you, you were a dancer, you are a dancer. Yep. You can see it in his dancing feet. You can see that just that athletic, in the broader sense, athletic ability he had. The fact that Bunsey pointed out that Billy Joel himself 
was no n- no uh, mean uh, boxer his own self as a youngin. He got he was a Golden Gloves winner. So this is making a lot of sense now, isn't yeah. it? This is why we get Rocky Marciano in his lyrics. Yes. It's where we get Sonny Liston beating Floyd Patterson. Uh, another massive fight, possibly with with mob connections. So we can see why why Billy's obsession is there. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's entirely reasonable that Sugar Ray Robinson is in this lyric. I mean, there's no doubt. If you're young Billy and you're partial to a little flurry of the boxing gloves in the ring, uh, trotting and dancing around the canvas, I'm sure I'm using all the wrong imagery. You're the sports writer. You don't <laughs> trot on the canvas. You <laughs> skip and dance. Yeah, for okay, sure. Skip and dance. So if he's a young and skipping and dancing on the canvas, he is going to be looking up to uh, Sugar Ray and he's going to be reading those accounts of those great sports writers of the day. So, yeah, yeah I think I think it's uh, understandable that this fellow is in the lyric. Yeah, I agree. So that is Lyric Slash Episode 17. And ly- Katie, where does Billy take us next? Billy takes us to Episode 18, which is Panmunjom, which is where the Korean War armistice was signed. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty of the actual fight in the Korean War. The Forgotten War. Wow. OK, I'm looking forward to that. If you'd like another podcast to listen to, there's a natural one to tell you about here. That is Death of a Sports Star. Real deep dives into the lives of sports stars we loved and we lost too early, including Sonny Liston, an amazing episode about Sonny Liston, who we've talked about on this pod. If you want to find it, just search for Death of a Sports Star in all the usual podcast places. And if you want to keep up to date with We Didn't Start the Fire, you can track us down on social media at Spread That Fire. Please subscribe, leave us a review. And if you feel like writing us a fan letter, you can email us fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. 
In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.